0: the truth matters but the fact is is that people out there decide what they want to believe
1: welcome to politicalology I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's panel, back in studio, in person, in the same place we were just a few weeks ago, this is like deja vu. Returning the Roundup is the highly sought-after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Susan, straight off the set, good to see you. Great to
0: be here. And I love when we get to do <laughs> these things in person. It's just so much more fun. It makes a difference. And... I just have to say, like, there's a lot to talk about this week. (laughs) There's a lot to talk
1: about. Also, last time we did this, we got a bunch of email uh, from people saying, oh my God, I can totally tell the difference when you're in person. (laughs) They were like, oh, so good. Also, returning to the roundup, Hagar Shamali. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the US mission to the UN and at the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. She has also served as Senior Policy Sanctions Advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East Director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World.
2: Oh My World, Ron. <laughs> I can't believe we're in person again.
1: <laughs> On YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. And she occasionally moonlights over at MSNBC with Susan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. thank you for bringing Where here. she does
0: Welcome. not wear wigs.
1: That's right. <laughs> you but should do that.
2: Sometime. It's starting to get into the general discourse is and it? so now some anchors will be like where's and wig? I where's your Putin wig? Yeah. And
1: so <laughs> I'm going to have to
2: weave it in now. I like oh, that this is becoming my thing. That
1: would be really good. <laughs> that would be really good. Up first this week we're going to discuss The roller coaster ride that is the investigations into the Biden family what's real and what's theater. Then we're going to look at this week's NATO summit and what it could mean for the war in Ukraine. Then we're going to discuss the efforts in eastern Oregon to move the state border and join Idaho and really the broader story that that's a part of. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to look at Meta's new Twitter copy, Threads, the feuding between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, and whether Twitter really is hanging by a thread. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus or click the link at the top of today's show notes. And we'll dig in right after this. All right, over the last few weeks, there's been an ongoing dispute between the IRS agent Gary Shapley and the U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss over the handling of the Hunter Biden investigation. So he was appointed by Trump. Weiss was kept on board for the Hunter Biden case, even into the Biden administration. And just recently, he supervised Hunter Biden's plea deal. But that inquiry isn't over yet. So everyone will be familiar with the headlines from Hunter Biden's, maybe it was a sweetheart deal, maybe it wasn't. We talked about it on the show a while back. The key here is the investigation isn't over. So I think when a lot of people hear, there was a plea deal, they think, okay, case closed, it's over. It's not over. The investigation is still ongoing. So that's one thing to keep in mind. While Attorney General Merrick Gartland has testified to Congress that Weiss had autonomy in the case, IRS agent Shapley's testimony claimed otherwise. Shapley claimed Weiss said he was not ultimately going to decide if charges would be filed, that Weiss faced resistance when he tried bringing charges against Hunter in L.A. and Washington and that Weiss was denied special counsel status. Now, both Weiss and Garland have refuted the accusation that Weiss wasn't the deciding official, put that in quotes. Both also said that Weiss had never requested special counsel status. Weiss did so in two letters to Congress, and he has not denied, though, that the Biden-appointed U.S. attorneys in California and Washington had rebuffed his request to file charges against Hunter Biden in those jurisdictions. The New York Times reported that they had independently verified that, Uh, And Weiss did write that he, quote, had discussions with departmental officials regarding potential appointment as a special attorney, which would have allowed me to file charges in a district outside my own without the partnership of the local U.S. attorney. He wrote that he had never been denied the authority to bring charges in any jurisdiction. He also wrote that he had been assured that if he needed to be granted the authority to charge Hunter Biden in the District of Columbia or the Central District of California, that he would be. But he did not say that he had requested and been granted special attorney status. So the part that jumped out to me was that the Biden-appointed U.S. attorneys in California and D.C. decided not to pursue charges. That's the key here. The question is why, and we don't know. How concerned does that make you, Susan?
0: I'm actually not overly concerned. I think that um Weiss made it very clear that he was what he was looking at and what they found. I would just like to say while we say the investigation is still open, it's my understanding that that's more or less a legal issue. They wait until it's all to bed before they actually say it's closed. So I don't think they're investigating further. There's nothing to indicate that, but I I feel like the bigger problem is is that everything that Trump and Rep- Trumpism and Republicans have done to undermine our justice system is like the truth matters. But the fact is, is that people out there decide what they want to believe. And if you want to believe Hunter Biden's guilty and that there's a big cover up going on that includes, you know, a a Republican appointee from Donald Trump, you're going to believe it. And there's nothing that is going to buffer that, that hard reality. So that's where I, I I'm most concerned. Yes, I care about the truth, but Biden. It's not going to hurt Democrats. Biden with Democrats, and I don't think it was ever going to make a difference what the truth was with mm. Republicans.
1: Hagar, initial thoughts. Well, so when I I agreed with
2: you when I saw the part about the denial. Of uh, to take these cases forward. That was the part that struck me as well. Because but we don't know why. And I, I'm not a legal expert, and so I, I can't really speculate as to why they decided not to. The thing that I had, you know, there were pros and cons. The the pro to me, to start with that, is that I like that we have, thankfully, this this intolerance to corruption in the U.S. government in general, regardless of how—I mean, it was awful during the Trump administration, but the way the press reacts, the way the public reacts, I like seeing a general intolerance no matter which side it's coming from. Um, And the reason I say that is because as a former government employee, I I thought Biden's—the texts, at least, that I saw and the behavior that I that we learned about with Ukraine, with uh, China now, is 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 outrageous. It is outrageous. When you go to the government, you 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 do financial disclosures, you sign ethical forms, you you have ethics trainings multiple times a year, and that includes your spouse, and um, it includes your spouse and your immediate family members, and like kids, not parents. But that said, these are things that 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 a family that has been in politics for so long that all members of the family should have known. He should have known he shouldn't have spoken to that Chinese businessman that way. The millions of dollars that you have going to the Biden family, to multiple relatives, by the way, of the Biden family, I think is a problem. And I know a lot of government friends of mine, all of us, we look at it just as an embarrassment as and it's ugly and we don't like it. And unfortunately, we've come to expect it from the Trump family uh, and less so on the Democratic side. And so when we see it, you know, it just, I think it's its upsetting. And, you know, sometimes I look at it and think like, well, so all those times that we were threatened with messing up the smallest thing on our financial disclosure, you mean we wouldn't have lost our jobs? Because I think it, the American public is right to question that money, those business dealings betw- between Hunter Biden and, and, and other members of the Biden family, by the way around the world.
0: And let's make it clear, when you have a government job, like what I had it in city, in the city of New York and the state of New York, these financial disclosure forms are like nothing yeah. you have ever seen. And I mm-hmm. have kept mine mm. out of pure fear <laughs> that somehow what I submitted 20 years ago, they're going to, and if I went back into government, I have to reconcile them. I mean, these are massive amounts of documents. So that idea that it's, because of who you are and who you're related to, if you're at the top, it doesn't matter. Whereas people like us working in government, mm-hmm. it's we, we walk around with the fear of God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't emphasize right. that enough. And it's not a it's not a partisan thing. Yeah, no, it's just like, oh my God, I did I do everything on my? I missed an ATM bank fee. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so. so th- this thing has turned into a, just an absolute. A uh, storm of media coverage. that's really difficult to parse for ordinary people if you're if you're looking at it. And this is why I think we've talked about this on the show. But in the past, the way corruption is just sort of saturated now, or is going to be saturated eventually. Even though you know Trump is not Biden, Biden is not. These these things are very in vastly different sort of um, uh, universes of of severity, right? Of corruption that we know of. Republicans are obviously trying to. Find a link between all of this stuff and the president himself, President Biden himself, which they have been unable to do so far. But that's what they're chasing. Um, But in the meantime, I don't want to lose sight of, Hagar, what you mentioned, which is that there was a lot of money flowing into bank accounts of members of the Biden family. And, you know, before there's a a pivot, obviously, to the money that Jared Kushner made from serving in the White House, I get it. What he did was bad. very, Very bad. Also awful. But I don't think... I think, to your point, I don't think it helps our country if we hold elected officials or their families to the standards that Republicans set for Trump. Right. Let's not make Trump the standard. If it's less than what, as bad as he did it, doesn't mean it's OK and that it's permissible. Right. And so I think this is appropriate. We should also point out that based on the evidence that is available, it doesn't look like there's any evidence of lawbreaking or that then-Vice President Biden acted or influenced any policy decision to benefit one of the companies that was making these payments to his family members. But there was more than $10 million that was paid from foreign companies to members of the Biden family during the Obama administration. And if you live in a left of center media bubble, you might not even be aware of that fact. Those payments ran through at least 20 businesses to Hunter Biden, President Biden's brother, James, James's wife, Sarah Jones Biden, Beau Biden's widow, Hallie Biden, Hunter Biden's ex-wife, Kathleen Buell, uh, Hunter's current wife, Melissa Cohen and three children of the president's son and the president's brother, according to Jim Comer. This includes about a million dollars in payments from a businessman convicted of bribery in Romania and investigated by British authorities, and it includes the massive payments Hunter Biden received for his work, quote-unquote work, for the Ukrainian oil and gas company Burisma. Biden had never worked in the oil and gas industry and had never traveled to Ukraine, but received up to $83,000 a month. So these are all actual facts. This is not like Republican right-leaning propaganda. This is all vetted and verified information. And it should make anybody raise their eyebrows about corruption, right? Whether or not you can demonstrate a link to the president and whether or not you can demonstrate that any policy decisions were made uh, or influenced uh, as a result of these payments. So I guess the question is, how, Hagar, does this practice of family members of officials using their names to get money, whether it's as private citizens or from their roles inside government, impact national security? How seriously should we be taking it? If you are a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, a fierce supporter and defender of President Biden, uh, what do you need to know about this stuff? God, to, I love this question.
2: This? For those listening, I'm smiling right now because this question hits at the heart of where my mind was going. And it's because I don't want to make it seem that I don't want to make it seem like it's it's uh, impossible for a relative of an elected official to go make millions of dollars. Maybe you have a startup. Maybe you work in tech. I don't know. Maybe you're a banker, whatever it might be. A lot of this money was coming from abroad, from countries abroad that have interests in the United States and interests in U.S. policy and interest in shifting U.S. policy one way or another. And you see it a lot in Washington. It's it's just it's gross in D.C. You see all the time governments trying to hire lobbyists, PR people, um, whomever they can get, whatever kind of consultant they can, and they have one, one usual, usually one number one goal, which is access, access to elected officials or access to the National Security Council or to Capitol Hill. So so that they can lobby for whatever issue it is they want, and they can influence those decisions. And it is how Washington works. I don't think there are any other governments that work that way, by the way. This is very unique to D.C., where we allow foreign governments to either hire certain representatives or or themselves, lobby for certain causes or efforts or missions or goals. And that's how this, this ends up, this type of behavior, whether it's successful or not, because it's not always successful. I... I don't think, and I, I don't mean to imply that I thought, that I think that President Biden was involved in, or vice president at the time, in these business dealings. Right, I don't think that. he was. Yep. And I, and, and they haven't proven that, and I wouldn't have any reason to think that, by the way. Um, but his family members should have known better. And a lot of people in Washington will sell this kind of access, or imply they have this kind of access to make a lot of money, and it is, it comes with a very high price tag, and it is not always successful. But it can, imp, it can, affect national security because the U.S. government, uh, every branch, has a certain way of looking at national security just with its foreign policy eyes and its national security objectives. And when you have a foreign country meddling in that, or you have a business person with, or lobbyist meddling in that and trying to say, well, you know what, but but these folks have oil, and if I were you, I wouldn't go so hard on them because we're going to need their oil for X, Y, Z reason, or you know what, I brokered a little deal with them where they're going to sell their oil for – I'm making this up, by the way. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm just giving a random example. And um, and it, it could undermine the national security yeah, system.
0: But but, but yeah. this is – I mean, that happens – in huge companies and businesses throughout the US. This is yes. not this is not a uniquely Biden or Hunter Biden sure. issue. Yes. Yep. And as a matter of uh, fact, you
1: know, Molly has said this is how the Russians have, yeah, have the, bought off heads of nonprofit like all of the, yeah.
0: the difference is in a lot of countries versus the US, they all do it. It just involves a bag full of cash versus reporting. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the difference. We actually require reporting on business if you yes. on those kind of uh business uh relationships. But, you know, just to go back to the Biden and the idea of influence and what it means. And, again, if we're talking about the investigation, I say I haven't seen anything that that leads it
1: there. But then— And they can't say much either because it's still open, right? They will not—they can't comment.
0: Here's something, and it was—I know you're going to get killed for it that I said this wrong. But, you know, it didn't look too good when Hunter Biden became an artist either and and sold six-figure—
1: I didn't even know this.
0: Oh, I'm sending you an article about that. Oh, my. didn't even know this. yes. And that they tried to say that the auction, it was all going to be unknown donors. But let's face Hoboken it, Hunter Mart. Biden— Oh, that's a very good question. Oh. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's a thing, and it mattered, and it was a perception problem. And that's where I take issue with the Bidens, mm. is Hunter Biden— he made the, he became an artist whenever after the pres as after Biden was elected, yeah, so the point is is like, all right, well, you're buying this art from someone who has no background, is not known as an artist isn't not currently showing any on this mm-hmm. display, but he was obviously had a lot of legal battles and yeah. needed to do something, and the implication is is that his art matters because he's the son of a president, yeah. Well
1: in the hmm. same way that George W. Bush's art battered because he was the president. It wasn't
0: yeah, very But that. but here's the difference. I loved his art. It's But, but, but here, <laughs> okay. here here's the big difference is that George Bush wasn't making any right. real money off it. Wasn't enough, so but, and if he did, you there there was nothing he could do as a former president. Right. Versus I don't I mean, there's been elected officials in New York State who have gone to jail, not because they got their kid a job and not because they did anything where the kid had worked, but because the kids say, well, you know, my father is a blankety-blank. Now, that person, the father went to jail. <laughs> <laughs> now, think about that. Now, so Hunter Biden is, you know, a, a, a amateur artist, I, I would say at best. So we, we need a whole overhaul of look at the rules and regulations around this. But when Congress still says it's okay to be an insider trader— where where is it when going when Nancy to Pelosi come from? says
1: it's still okay, and then right. she changed her mind. She has changed her mind now, which I applaud her for. Okay, but now that she's not the speaker.
0: <laughs> you still are allowed to do it, be an insider trader. Like, how is that even possible? I mean, it it makes no sense in Democrat or Republican circles unless you're a member of Congress making the money. But the public has to demand yes. more. This falls. Strictly on voters, and I say voters because they're the ones who determine who is in office, and you have to say no.
1: Yeah, but if it's Trump v. Biden, I still want Biden. Like,
0: well, it's, yes, it's. it's-, it's- And again, I I use this statement all the time because it's really how I get through the day with Biden sometimes is don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. So I do. And I say, easy choice. Yeah. No brainer. Yeah. Doesn't mean I like what's happened.
1: So here's the question I think uh, that is worth putting on the table. Susan, how do you advise the Biden team in how to handle this? Are they handling it appropriately? Given all of the circumstances, what should the president do? Should he continue to say nothing? Um, is it, how do you think he's playing this politically and from a communication standpoint?
0: So, two years ago is when this should have been handled, <laughs> and then they shouldn't have allowed certain things to happen, like the Hunter Biden art show. Um, now they can, they can only deal with the hand that they have. So, what do they have to do? They have to keep moving past it. They have to. Do what they can to just say this is the findings of Republican appointed presidential Trump President Trump's appointed counsel in the investigation. They just have to keep throwing it oh. that way. I mean, Maureen Dow. I mean, think about this. Maureen Dow wrote a column on Sunday. It was really, or two Sundays ago, I have no concept of time, that was really like a zinger to the Bidens. And that was, Don't forget your seventh grandchild. Mm because Hunter Biden chooses not to recognize one of his children. Mm. And when Biden said I have six, now I could be wrong, it could be five, and it's a sure. six, but
1: But they're forgetting one. But
0: they're forgetting one. And intentionally. And that to me is a signal like they still don't get it.
1: <sighs> yeah. Okay. Uh I don't want I mean, I don't want people to get the impression that we're just shitting on the Bidens for no reason here. There's a reason here, and it doesn't look good.
0: Well, like you're make anybody uncomfortable. But but here's the thing, we, we when you have an alternative like donald trump
1: yeah
0: you can it doesn't mean that 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 biden is so perfect right. or great it yeah. just means that trump is really that bad yeah and if you don't want to take it from the current republican look at the polling and how people feel about biden wanting biden to run for re-election yeah they'll vote
1: for him they'll vote for him yeah i'll vote for him I'll but vote but for uh, but him i too. think it's important that we like say we can hold both of these things as true at the same time. I can want to vote for him and also look squarely at all of the problems uh, at the same time. Right, and, and by the way, I don't like, really
0: want to vote for him. I just right, will okay. have to vote yeah, for him. Sure. <laughs> because of
1: the alternative. <laughs> because of the alternative. Well, we're a long ways away.
0: <laughs> yes. Is it a problem that
2: Hunter Biden was offered a deal where he's he's been offered a plea deal that that now prevents him from being prosecuted.
1: So here's the thing, and this is why I said, this is why I made a note to say that this investigation is still open because I was confused by that too. The, the, way, this, the way this ordinarily works, generically speaking, I'm not making any comments about the specific cases, is that um, the, a plea deal is made in exchange for not prosecuting the things to which you plead guilty. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that if they find other things that they might charge you with, that you are also off the hook for those. They're not. They're not in the scope of that plea agreement, which is why it's still open. So unless, under the course well, of this well, investigation. Unless
0: you got queen for a day and you've admitted everything that you have done wrong up to that point. If they found sure, out you sure, lied. Sure. And like, so let's say he's not being prosecuted for jaywalking. Yeah, He had to say he jaywalked though. He had to admit in yeah. th- to all of the things he's done. That, they can't go back and prosecute.
1: That they accused made. him of.
0: That they accused
1: him. Correct. But there may be things that they learn about which they weren't unaware when they made it. Yes,
0: but then it still falls on Hunter Biden because you're told, you must tell us every crime Mm. you have committed. Mm. That's, I mean, that's why Michael Cohen went Uh, to jail. He would not get involved. So if he lied, this
1: could get very bad for him.
0: Exactly. And if he lied on, I, you know, I did not do this crime and they found out he did Hmm. or he didn't admit to it, it like they didn't know it at the time, yeah. but like I robbed a bank,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, then it's game over. That's why these yeah. plea deals are so significant. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, have we done any any other notes? Um, it, the, the thing is, like, I just want to be clear because we have some listeners who are, who are are allergic to conversations that are critical of the Biden family, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I get that. It's uncomfortable. Um, especially when you know you've worked so hard to get him elected as I did and you did. And like, however, we're, we're, we're a couple of years out from that election now he's now in power and these we're going into another election and the stakes are extraordinarily high and it's really important to look the facts in the face. And, um, and 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 reckon with And I
0: argue that better there. to have these conversations yeah. now Absolutely.
1: than Absolutely. let them become
0: big campaign issues Correct. let's diffuse it let's have the conversation let's get to the truth
1: now deal with it and yes. move on and then don't,
2: move on don't, yeah. don't let the don't let don't leave space for the republicans to right. use this as right. some kind of you know ugly stain and also I actually think and I've always thought this from a comms perspective is that it's much better for you know not only that the truth comes out but that maybe there's room for reaction um, so that we can separate the president from all this. And uh, I don't know how much he's going to throw his own family under the bus, but but there has to be some kind of acknowledgement that, you know what, I was not personally involved in this. They are involved in processes to um, w- that are legal processes to— uh, I don't, I'm the only word I'm thinking of is repent, but <laughs> yeah. to admit guilt yeah. or to work through the legal system and 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 uh, and pay for their flaws or faults or whatever um, and move on so that it's it's the, if you deny it, it's way worse. If you brush it under the rug, it's way worse. And then it becomes a liability for Biden. So I agree with you. I'm I always tell people I'm an equal opportunist when it comes to criticizing. And so and you have to be like that and to strive for a more perfect nation. And so, <laughs>
1: yeah. Okay, let's move to NATO. This week, NATO held a two-day summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. There were two very big pieces of news that came out of this. First and foremost was that Turkey's President Erdogan has agreed to support Sweden's bid to join NATO. This, like, made a lot of people's eyes pop out, including mine. Turkey had spent the last few months blocking Sweden's application. Uh, Their bid to join has been sent to Turkey's parliament, but Erdogan said that Sweden needed to take more steps to win parliamentary support without offering specifics. He said that they wouldn't take up the matter until October. Hungary is the only other NATO member which hasn't ratified Sweden's membership. Hungary's foreign minister said that ratification of Sweden's bid is now, quote, only a technical question. Sweden's entry would bring the total number of NATO countries up to 32 after Finland was admitted this spring. Hagar, what does this mean for NATO and what does it mean for U.S. national security?
2: Yes, so excited to geek out on this. So first, accepting Sweden, and I agree with you, I was very surprised at how quickly it happened, and I'll dive into that a little bit. But- it, it achieves two major things. So first, having Sweden is important because it geographically is loc- has a huge border along the Baltic Sea, and Russia faces the Baltic Sea. So that's an entire chunk of water that you are now able to defend from an alliance standpoint. Sweden has a very strong navy because of that. They also... Uh, their their land also reaches up into the Arctic, so that's again NATO alliance now reaching up into the Arctic is also very valuable. So on one hand, geographically it's very important, and then on the other, at a time when Putin's entire goal is to try and make it seem like NATO is divided and that he might try and prolong this war so that others get fatigued, this is a statement of not only are we not feeling any fa- kind of fatigue, we are only growing stronger and we are only growing bigger. So that message to Putin is very important. So that's the importance of Sweden joining in general. But the reason that that I agree that I was surprised at how quickly it happened is that President Erdogan of Turkey has been playing a very dirty game, haggling, trying to get any kind of concession he can out of this, holding the cards to Sweden's uh, membership. And he— Uh, negotiated all sorts of deals with Sweden that Sweden gave in on uh, regarding counterterrorism and holding uh, certain expats in, in, uh, in Sweden and extraditing them and so on. And Sweden gave in. And then all of a sudden at the beginning of this summit, Erdogan comes and says that before Sweden can join NATO, Turkey's uh, Turkey needs a, quote, clear and strong message on its candidacy for the EU, <laughs> which is a pipe dream. That is literally never going to happen, especially not under Erdogan and his increasingly authoritarian regime. Such a thug. Such a thug. I mean, trying to squeeze out whatever he can. And so when I saw this, I thought to myself, I sort—I rolled my eyes and I was like, oh, great. We're going to go into the drama of the NATO summit and this Sweden thing is going to take another six months. But... It happened overnight so quickly because the U.S. stepped in and negotiated, and the thing they negotiated was selling F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. To Turkey. Yes, and that has been controversial for months now. Senator Menendez has been the one who's been the most vocally against this because of Turkey's provocative and thuggish behavior toward Greece, towards Kurds, our allies, in uh, northern Syria, and its general (sighs) effort to... To go to work against democracy. So apparently they met with Senator Menendez and convinced him and said, like, listen, it's better to have Turkey and Sweden in the tent right now, and we need this. So we got to move this ahead. And, and apparently that's that's what so happened.
1: They, I don't know why. Yeah, I
0: was not surprised. Not because I'm such a great thinker. by no means <laughs> you can, no one can <laughs> accuse me of that.
1: Susan, but- hold on. Let's <laughs> top down for just a second. You bring the most look aheady, look ahead stories every single time time and they always come true. So don't don't sell yourself short here. But
0: it just seemed that after Erdogan won election because he actually had his first contested election, they had to go to a runoff. That's right. That that all of a sudden said to everyone, "All right, there's no getting rid of this guy and we are stuck with him." And he knows we are stuck with mm. him. So I, I thought he was playing a very str- he was had a very strong hand given what we wanted. He Erdogan. He or Erdogan? Yeah. Excuse me. And also given that w- there was going to be bad news on Ukraine, mm. something had to to mm. gel and click. And Sweden to me was exactly the right thing to throw yeah. in there. I mean, remember Finland and Sweden came in together. Yeah. So um, the fact that. Sweden wasn't—that Turkey was holding off on that was very important. But politically, Erdogan played it, I think, quite well. Politically, very well. Yeah. And I think everyone has been playing this hand— and just waiting for the opportunity. I think this was scripted out two months ago.
1: Show me a lever long enough and I'll move the world. Yeah. <laughs> he got the leverage.
2: Yeah, so, well, he had all the cards and he played it very well. I totally agree. He's a thug. Yeah. But, oh, uh, he's a
1: horrible so, yeah. person. But, but, to, but to be clear, the U.S. made the strategic calculation that uh, Sweden in NATO was more valuable to us than arming an authoritarian with our F-16 fighter jets.
2: Yes, except I, my guess is <laughs> like that they're that's going the, to... Like I, well, there's, but there's one, well, there's one caveat to this. Okay. Yeah, yes, to the answer. They, they may place certain conditions on them, specifically when it comes to sure. Greece and, and Kurds and so on. But there is, there is something interesting here, which is that Turkey, uh, years ago, bought fighter jets from Russia and got a slap on the hand from the United States. And so the U.S. also... And I agree that there was a big calculation here based on after the election that, you know, okay, we got to deal with this guy. There is an interest in keeping him in the Western sphere of influence Mm -hmm. and not having him lean toward Russia. So him talking about EU candidacy, even though that's, like I said, literally never going to happen, and then wanting fighter jets from the United States instead of Russia Mm.
0: is also something that is in, in the national security interest of the United States. Okay, okay. Yeah. And when you pivot, though, too, and look at Biden with it, like the, with everything in NATO, like it was, he he needed a successful- Yeah,
1: and this was. And
0: this was. Totally. Getting Sweden in and kind of saying with a wink and a nod to Ukraine, it's coming. But he'll it'll never matter in the general election. Yeah. But the fact is, is that he's turned NATO around, or at least the U.S. relationship, and strengthened NATO- yeah. That that will probably be his legacy. Like I think that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, it will be how Joe Biden saved NATO. Like that yeah. will those will be the books that are written about that critical t- yeah. time in international
1: entry. So in the final Communique, which is just a fancy faux pas word for press release. Why do we call them that? Why do, why do we say communique? What the fuck is that? It's the It's Are, an, it's your, are it's European. just trying to be uppity? Okay. Yes. Uh, Ukraine yes. was promised an invitation to join, quote, when allies agree and conditions are met, end quote. But the timing and conditions were left unsaid, surprisingly. Uh, when he saw the draft language on Tuesday, Zelensky posted a furious tweet He called the lack of a concrete timeline, quote, unprecedented and absurd. Ukraine has been pushing for a definitive timeline with specific steps and milestones, but uh, many NATO countries are cautious about risking a direct war with Russia and have been looking for a way to balance Ukraine's hopes with their security concerns. So Zelensky said he believed that Ukraine would be invited to join, quote, as soon as the security situation is stabilized, in simple terms, the moment the war is over, end quote. NATO has left the timeline a lot more ambiguous than that. A lot of the Putin apologists in the U.S. have cited uh, the opening for Ukraine to join NATO as the reason for the war. That's that's a that's a growing um, narrative on the right of center here. How do you think this is going to impact the perception uh, of the conflict? Briefly.
2: So first, you know, President Zelensky, you can't blame him for trying.
0: No, I think actually that speech that he gave. Yes. Was not meant for anyone in NATO. It was a message home. I yep. am fighting for you. Yeah. Yes, he has to he get do. people on the field fighting. He that was his fight. You know,
1: to he's motiv- an extraordinary yeah. political tactician. But
0: it had nothing to do with yeah. with the the, the folks
2: in NATO. Yeah. No, he and I admire him for. And this is constant, right? When he asks when he, you know, he was pounding the pavement asking for F-16s and, and at every step of the way has, has, has really done an admirable job at fighting for the best that he possibly can. But I agree with you. I don't think that message, because he knows that joining anyway during the war is not going to happen. And putting some kind of timeline on the end of the war doesn't make any sense anyway, because what defines the end of this war? It, it actually started in 2014. And so how exactly do you define that? He knows that, the Allies are not going to agree to be roped in. He also knows, by the way, because he's been told—and the thing is, he's, he's hanging on a promise that was made to him during the Bush administration in 2008. Not to him personally, sorry, to Ukraine, where there was a promise for an invitation to join NATO. And— by the way, as a rule in diplomacy, nobody should ever do things like that. But <laughs> they did, and 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 left that legacy for everybody subsequently to handle. But the fact is that there are certain conditions that every country must meet to join NATO. They include an, indep- an independent judiciary, good looking good on your corruption, a track record. Um, a, a, a military that is civilian led, for example. That's that's not the case in Ukraine, for example. Um, economic, the economic ability to give two percent uh of your of your GDP in the event of of a of a war that NATO has to step into. So all these things that Ukraine has to meet. And they're not willing to make exceptions for Ukraine, as they shouldn't for most countries, for any country. And so this is the thing, and and Ukraine was given an action plan, by the way, for that. So a lot of this, I think, is a lot of bravado, and like you said, Susan, I think a lot of it is for the audience back home. Home. But the fact is that the way I view it at least is that, and I and I would never argue, I think the idea that that Putin went into Ukraine because of the NATO thing is not at all fair or accurate. However, I do think it's a very important bargaining chip in the event of diplomatic negotiations. And we all know negotiations are what end wars. And Zelensky and Ukrainians are not going to want to give land away, which, by the way, they shouldn't. And so what's left? You've got the question of NATO. You've got the question of U.S. missiles that are based near Russia, things like that. These are the types of things, sanctions. These are what's going to go in a negotiation. And so it's too soon to give that up.
0: But I want to go back to the corruption issue in Ukraine because that actually is what led to president trump being impeached yeah. the first time yeah. and it's really important to recognize that is that the corruption in ukraine was out of control zelensky was elected
1: to clean up corruption to, exactly
0: like yep. that and that's why he didn't bend but prior to that and not too long ago so way after the 2008 commitment to join nato you know we'll get you there buddy they had a lot of work to do and they still did. Yeah. They still do. Yeah. And that is important. So when you say right. you're meeting the the requirements, it's yeah, you're getting fast tracked because you showed you a badass nation and that we want you, we want people with these values with NATO. Yeah. But you know what? You still have to do all of the other things. You, you still have to fill out, up. yeah. You have to make sure you check all the other boxes. Yeah. So it's been an interesting time for Ukraine, but again, I I think they were. I think it makes sense that why I mean again due to military issues and such that they weren't offered a NATO position but I don't think anyone ever thought they were going to get it this time yeah. around. Yeah.
1: Okay, I want to pivot premature. I want to pivot to something before we leave this subject. Uh slightly, slightly different but relevant um which is that back in May Fiona Hill the former senior director for the European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council Give a speech in Estonia where she warned that there has been a mutiny, that's her word, against U.S. dominance. Um, This is a theme. I wanted to talk about this today because it's been a theme that I've been paying very, very close attention to and that we've brought up on the roundup a few times here and there, especially with um, Mike and I have talked about this a lot. There was an appetite for quote, a world without a hegemon, that's what she said, and that the war in Ukraine marks the end of the Pax Americana. She also noted that when the U.S. and Western allies refer to 6.5 billion people as the, quote, global South, or, quote, the rest, it reeks of colonialism. That these countries don't see the U.S. as a virtuous state, um, quote, perceptions of American hubris and hypocrisy are widespread. She also argued that we needed a diplomatic surge to rehabilitate the West's image on the global stage. And so, uh, first of all, um, maybe you can just B- very briefly explain what Pax Americana means for our listeners.
2: Sure, it's the idea that the U.S. is the global superpower, the global hegemon, yeah. um, and and that and that countries around
1: the world look to the U.S. to lead on a range of issues. So we've had this ongoing conversation on politicology, especially with Molly, uh, Molly and Mike, and and a number of others about. Um, well, first of all, as Myri- Molly has characterized, you know, the tension between isolationism and and. Um, and interventionism, we could say on the other side to use two very pejorative uh, terms for those positions. But this pincer that exists on the left and on the right of isolationism, um, which is people for different political reasons are growing tired of American intervening America intervening in other parts of the world. And um, And Molly has valiantly, you know uh fought against that idea and why it's so dangerous, and why the world is a better place. she and many other people, I'm just using her because I love her so much um why the world is a better place when America's leading
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the question is how much do we really understand how much does America really understand the impact of what we call American leadership in the world, and how much do we? Avoid looking at the uh, I'm gonna, a sterile term would be negative externalities of the of those interventions um and what is it going to mean for our security and our interests as the position of the u s declines and this idea of the u s in decline is not one that is specific only to our role in the world but also here at home there's a growing perception domestically that America is in decline. And that's a feature of a lot of presidential campaigns right now, the narratives, the stories. So I just wanted to spend a few minutes um, reflecting on getting your thoughts on this idea of America in decline, both uh, outside of our borders and inside of our borders and what that makes you. I have no like very specific questions, just generally how you think about that. And maybe, Susan, you can lead off and and Hagar, you can wrap it up.
0: Well, the first thing that came to mind as you were speaking was, okay, so if it's not the U.S., it'll be China. So which one do you want? Hmm. <laughs> because it, it it does come down to that. When you, it will be an economic and military powerhouse that will always have more—not more say, but more influence rather in in world affairs. And do you want do you want China to keep building up in the Pacific? Making islands like they get this. Austra- what does Australia want? Do they want China? or they want the U.S.? And that's what it kind of comes down to, I think, in a very simplistic, not technical, or just just my my insight is yeah. Yeah, you may not like it, but then it's China. Yeah, because there's no one else who's going to r- rival us. And what
1: privately. about internally?
0: And internally. That breaks my heart. I mean, and I know we're going to touch on it in, in a different segment, but the fact that we believe now or I shouldn't say we believe the fact that in today's society, you belong to one side or another. You live in one state or another. You choose to educate your children in one place or another, and that's because People have worked to divide us, but we've let ourselves because there's an underwritten underwriting of all of this that government has failed us. Mm. And I think when you look at our lead conversation, it's not just Hunter Biden. We said this. It's Trump. It's and it's like at least 30 other politicians I can tick off. They create a lack of faith in the system. They say they're above the law, basically. They so internally. When you talk about how strong we are as a united states, I mean, it started for me after overturning Roe is are we a United States?
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: And that scares me that people are happy to be divided. And that's the fundamental
1: underlying problem. We're gonna talk about that in the next segment. But before we do, yeah, Hagar, I'm curious about your your thoughts both both externally and internally, and I guess we you know we could offer people some specifics um, if they're not already familiar with this. But the way the U.S. has used its military in other countries and other places has not always been um, uh, for what everybody would call good. <laughs> um, and and then the on the economic piece of this, uh, we have essentially weaponized the dollar. We've weaponized our currency in many in in, in many instances, and the rest of the world's kind of tired of that. And we're, we'll 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 expound on how that has worked in another episode in another series but but um whether it's our money or our might um we have used those things um to pursue American interests and American interests are not always um what the rest of the world wants and are not always the benefit anyway your thoughts
2: well and you know just to quickly react to that on that that is what superpowers do and it's it's you know not to get into like political science and a real, you know, professorial, but that is a realist world is that the, you know, it's the belief that countries that are the strongest are the ones that use their military and economy to get ahead. Realpolitik. politique. Yes. And, and, and that's, and that's a fact. And I would, so I want to, I, first, I agree with Molly on this, the question that where America is not present, things are worse. And the thing that I would add to that is that when I was in government for the 12 years I was in government, there was not any, any, Portfolio I had, and I worked on Middle East issues. I worked on Africa issues. I worked on Asia issues. It was with Europe. It was a constant, nonstop stream of people who were either expatriates or from the other governments or nonprofits based ab- abroad who were begging for American leadership, and so, and 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 that that really painted the majority of my government career over and over again. When we didn't lead in a country like Syria or wherever it was, it was begging for leadership. And that wasn't just coming from Syrians, by the way, that was coming from Europeans and everybody who said, please, could you lead on us? They wait for us to lead, which was why it was when Biden came on the stage and wanted to restore our alliances, he was so welcomed. Remember that first G7? Yeah. It was this feeling of America is back. In fact, I think that was his main quote, right? And and there was a there was a yearning for that. And so I reject. And I I think Fiona Hill's speech just angered me on another level <laughs> because to me it felt like somebody who was not to get all freudian here but it felt like somebody who moved to the United States fell in love with the United States was all about the United States then was disappointed in how things have turned over the last few years and I get it and has now gone off and and, and her her speech bordered on hysterical honestly and because the idea that there could be no hegemon is naive as susan pointed out if it's not the United States it's China and China is working on it it's it's not just in the Asia Pacific, in Africa. I mean, you name it. They will swallow up whatever they can swallow up. So when she said that, I thought that was just – didn't it make any sense? And then this idea that – You don't that, buy
1: the multipolarity uh, idea? That, that things would be argue, better. Or or that we are already in or moving very fast toward a multipolar world, meaning multi- not, not a single hegemon, but um,
2: – I don't know about a single hegemon. But I would say more bipolarity with between the u s. and china and 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 Russia's kind of out now. But uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. the EU, for example, if you would look at the eu as as a group, they don't they don't weaponize their currency or you their 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 military budget is extremely low because, again, to get into the real politique, they are liberalists. They believe in security. They collect, they derive their power and security from alliances, from uh, collective security. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful in an ideal world. And, 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 and all countries have a measure of both, but that's not the world we live in. You can't act like that and fit and, and adequately face an adversary like China. And defend yourself. Yeah. You you just can't. And so it just is the way it is the way it is. And so, but the thing also that she said that I, that I, I don't agree with is this idea that there's this, there is this resentment or, um, Backlash to U.S. intervention, to U.S. Uh, uh, leadership. Sometimes, to more or more, they they view it as U.S. lecturing. Well, you don't agree that that exists. No, I, I do oh. believe it exists, but I think it's hypocritical. Ah. It does exist. I met with I can't tell you how many people in government <laughs> who would tell us that our lecturing was unnecessary, but why aren't we intervening? Well, in can the you, same sentence. Uh, couldn't, couldn't you imagine
0: uh, her giving that speech four years ago yeah. and saying, "Now we need the United States to intervene more because of Donald." Trump's leadership. Yeah. Like that would have been the speech he gave. I mean, I don't know. Yeah.
1: but Yeah. Well, the, so the the huh. Sorry, Fiona. Yeah. Uh Let's debate this, this is somewhere. good. No, this is this is I look, I don't know what the answers are here, but I think it's really worth looking at them. Looking at them seriously.
2: Yes, there is and, a question of American leadership. Yeah. And I didn't sorry, last last point, I know I've droned on about this. And, and on and the this what I want point. This is
1: what I wanted to ask you when you say when you say leadership and they're begging for US leadership.
2: What do they mean by that word? They really mean intervention. Mean? They really mean okay. some kind of physical presence. they really do and 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 it's impossible. and this is gets to the internal part, which is that. This isn't post World War II, right? Um, or or pre World War II, and we don't do that. And there is not an appetite for that in the United States. And I don't blame Americans for not wanting that. I do think that we have found, by weaponizing the dollar, for example, I find I, we have found unique ways to 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 spread our values, to achieve national security objectives without sending troops all over the place. But that is usually what people are requesting: is some kind of military or physical presence that shows the U.S. is here, the U.S. has got your back, and therefore that country can side with the U.S. Right, but it's usually to stop a civil war. Yes, or some kind of human rights abuse. Yes, that's right. So Mm -hmm. it gets a little tricky.
1: (laughs) We can't be the world's
2: police. We just can't,
1: but people want us to. Okay, we have not solved anything with this conversation, but it's really good. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move to... Idaho. No, I don't mean let's actually move to Idaho. <laughs> However, to Idaho. you know, my grandparents had a had a place in the northern, in the northern part of Idaho in the panhandle, uh, like close to the Canadian border. Um, when I was a kid, we used to go up there during summers and it was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful country, massive forests and uh, so I have fond memories of Idaho. Um
0: not anymore. Well,
1: in early June, voters in Willowa County, Oregon narrowly voted to require its commissioners to explore relocating Idaho borders to include Willowa County. Willowa joins 11 other counties in the conservative eastern part of the state that have voted to explore changing the state's borders. 11 other counties, that's 12 counties total in Oregon, that have now organized and voted to at least explore changing their borders. Um, the ballot measure passed by seven votes, uh, the most recent one. Here's the thing. I, I, this, is a, this is a story that has very much flown under the radar. You would not have seen it if you were just watching mainstream news, but I find it extraordinary and significant and telling. Um, not the least of which, because actually changing the state's borders is a really long shot. It's like not going to happen because it would require the state legislatures in both Oregon and Idaho and Congress. All of them to approve this plan, and that's just not going to happen. Okay, the last time the <laughs> U.S. split a state was in 1863. Uh, coincidentally, this was the same year that the Idaho Territory was incorporated. And that, anyway, 1863 was when West Virginia was split from Virginia. It was created out of Virginia. But here's the thing: these people are organizing to leave Oregon and join Idaho in 11 counties. And every single one of those votes has passed. A spokesman for the Greater Idaho Initiative told the Idaho State Journal that across those 12 counties, 59% of voters approved the ballot measure. That's a sizable majority. That's a resounding uh, election victory if you were running a campaign. Um, That's not close. He also said that moving the border would, quote, get people matched up to the government they want, end quote. Oregon's legislature has been dominated by Democrats. It's been more than 35 years since a Republican was governor, but the eastern part of the state remains more conservative. And so, like I said, the thing that really drew my attention to this was the fact that it's going to fail and that people are voting for it anyway. Because what I don't want to do is bring up the story and say, oh, look at all these kooky people in the eastern part of Oregon that think they're going to separate themselves from the rest of the state. Look, ha ha ha, right? That's not helpful. What's really telling here to me is, uh, so I see this as a symptom of Susan exactly the thing that you were talking about in the previous segment is which is this this sorting geographically, physically separating ourselves into different tribes. The New York Times ran this story not too long ago uh, with a with a really interesting visualization. Uh, of Republicans and Democrats, um, and they're basically where they live geographically. And you can see the blob that begins as purple over time completely separating into two, one, one blue blob and one red blob. And, and now they're basically completely disparate, and they've been moving apart from each other. And so I want to put this on the table and think about the desire for people, it's in Eastern Oregon specifically, to become part of Idaho. But the 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 reality that they do not see themselves as being served by the system anymore. And they are using the democratic process to organize and if not actually separate, send a very sound, very send a very loud message to the leadership that does exist, that they're fed up. They don't feel represented by by the leadership that that exists. So I my I actually had a lot of sympathy, even though. Even though like I'm sure that I disagree with them on, on on everything, I had a lot of sympathy and actually a lot of respect for the way that they have organized and used the system to put a put an initiative on the ballot and get people to vote for it, and they won. And that to me sends a message, and I wonder what you think about this.
0: Yeah, but what did they what they're trying to win is what's so disturbing. Let me yeah. put it this way. instead of it being politically like-minded folks, all wanting to be part of that, the same state, if I said, oh, one community was black and one was white, what happens if they were trying to legislate black people out of their state? It's the same thing in the sense of wanting an an opponent, someone to fight, someone who you want to blame that your life is worse for. And f- more importantly, and as, especially as we come out of the COVID fog, to unite as a together. Sometimes, even having these rallies and these meetings, it's it it allows you just to fester in that one place, and it goes against everything generations have been taught. And that it's good to hear other perspectives. We want to have a bigger tent politically because it allows us to hear what, you know, back in the day with Republicans, you could be pro-choice or pro-life. It, it was a good conversation to be had. And there were things that unite us. The thing is now is that no one's looking for what unites us. They're looking to be separated just to be with like-minded people. And that Really frightens me, and I know a lot of people say, "Well, that's a hot button that you threw in there about race." But it really, when you think about it, it's really not a whole lot different.
1: Yeah, Hagar, how are you? How do you think about this? And then, then one other question I think on the table is what role state and local leaders should play in reconciling these communities. Like, I think the governor should go there and talk to them. Yeah, talk to the leaders. That was what I was thinking. Like.
2: I'm gonna all be right, a bi- yeah. I, first of all, I agreed with everything Susan said. I'm gonna be a bit more of an asshole on this because I have no empathy here. Because <laughs> our our system is it is uh, you know while I think it's innovative, I guess um, it's also dangerous because it could give other people ideas to do something similar. Um, we don't we we don't want to face. You can't take that into your hands. We're not we're not facing remedial secession here in the United States where states can now break off or can divide amongst themselves. Yeah, that's, Texas that's considers it every now and then. I was gonna
0: say Texas <laughs> is always trying to <laughs> re-
2: succeed from the- <laughs> Yeah. Um, um you know, I saw a statistic that said ninety percent of Texas beaches have fecal matter. No, they can secede. So, <laughs> so <laughs> they need to fix that. Okay,
1: so well, but we're the, not going to Texas to go to the beach. No, nope,
2: nope, we're not. <laughs> no, sorry, yeah, not not a good report. So, but the thing that I that I really I that's what local elections are for. That's why, that's why we have elections at every single level. If you are a majority red area and you want a red, red leadership, you're going to get that. That's what local elections are for. If the majority of your state is not red, it is what it is. And, and I don't want to sound, you know, like an asshole here of just like, you know, suck it up, but, but also, but, but suck it up. And also- things change. So you mean to tell me in 50 years when Republicans become normal again um that that the 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 folks who and let's pretend that that Idaho goes far to the right and they say well, you know what we don't want to be far to the right anymore we want to be more center um or things have shifted and and, and we're not with them anymore. So they're going to do this again? This is it's absurd. Now I don't want to I don't, I almost don't want to legitimize so, this because it is never going to happen like you yeah, said, yeah. but it it concerns me for two reasons. One, this question of dividing this way and the need to divide this way, and two, that it is, I do think it's dangerous. I do think it's going to inspire other pockets across the United States to do things that are similar. And you know, in 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 states that are where you have this kind of these these points of contention and like in Pennsylvania or in Florida or Michigan or whatever. And um and that's not
1: healthy. So should um Democratic let's just say uh women who want to have an abortion in Alabama just suck it up.
2: Oh, well, so wait. Okay, wait. <laughs> this gets to the last point I was going to say. Okay. No. <laughs> but this gets to the last point I was going to say, which is where is the leadership from the top yeah. going, stepping in and saying, hey, I hear you, but not possible. Uh but let's find a way you know, to, that's the job of reminds governor. This a
1: conversation I had with my friend Jonathan Karen in Amsterdam a couple of years ago about deep democracy, which is, you can go Google deep democracy, it's a fascinating practice, but one of the things that it does is the majority asks the minority after an election, what do you need to come along? Mm-hmm. Because without that, you end up with the tyranny of the majority. Right. And that's what I, that's what I fear we're sorting ourselves into because over the last 15, 20 years, Susan, we've been talking about demographic sorting, right? A lot. we like now one in three Americans are almost completely isolated from members of the opposite party, 30%. And deciding that you want to move from a state that's dominated by a party you don't agree with, or that is, for example, limiting your rights fundamentally requires some amount of privilege. You have to have enough money. You have to have enough flexibility to leave, to go somewhere else. And a lot of people don't have that. And that's why I had sympathy for these people. Fair enough, Ron. You're so, changing my mind a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I Like, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm certainly not saying they should change their borders. What I'm saying is this is a, like a flashing red light on the dashboard of democracy and we need to fucking pay attention to it. And I wish that the leadership, red or blue, whoever they are, would go to these places and ask them, okay, we've made this decision. What do you need to come along?
0: Mm-hmm. And But it is leadership. I mean, yeah. I think about after when Trump was elected after, you know, shuddering and crying for a few days. Yeah. Um, the one thing that came clear is that Democrats were actually like, okay, like what can we do with you? They they still practice governance. Yeah. And and Donald Trump That's said, right. get the hell out of here. That's right. He had he did not look to build consensus. That's right. In any shape or form. And even Biden is still trying, Democrats are still trying to build consensus, which is called, I know it's a strange word, it's called governance. Mm-hmm. They want to govern. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that if you only think you beat up the other side. So, is it the enemy? Is it the opponent? Yeah. Is it
1: because once you are elected are, to power, your job changes from political actor to governor,
0: and they forget that it's a colleague, yeah, it's in a it's their enemy,
1: in the loyal cases. opposition, yeah, but
0: it's not their colleague, these are, yeah, and and. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where we really have gotten lost in the last few years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somehow negotiation or compromise became a bad word, which I still don't understand. Yeah, you're right. I like that
2: I think you're right. They need they deserve to be heard and trying to say like it's our way or the highway. You know, is this the Jonah Hill they're really going to die on? I mean, that's not, it doesn't make any sense.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, we'll put a link to that. We'll put a link to all this in the show notes, but I would encourage people to just go see what we're talking about. If you haven't heard about the story, I wouldn't blame you because it's not being reported very widely. I know about it. Exactly. And you do TV. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, Let's uh, move on now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories. Actually, that was not a big story, but it's an important story. So anyway, let's talk about what we're watching. Elsewhere, Susan, would you bring?
0: So everyone is looking towards Georgia and the potential indictments that will come out. I'm looking to see who isn't indicted. <laughs> 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 and if you recall, when, when there, the grand jury that broke up last year, which basically set, made the recommendations to indict a few, several people, the, the woman who came out, she was kind of giddy about like, oh, we'll see, and you're, you know, some, you'll you know those names. But looking at some of the, the DOJ documents, they have a lot of witnesses in them. They're unnamed, but there's a lot of witnesses. And I can't help but think that there are going to be some names that don't show up that are, is going to scare the life out of Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, for real. Think about it. He's already wondering who's turned on him.
1: Because if they're, so let's just spell this out for people. If their name isn't there, it means they've probably struck a deal and they've probably. ratted him out. Like
0: for example, yeah. Rudy Giuliani.
1: Yeah.
0: Rudy Giuliani's not indicted in Georgia. Ooh. Lindsey Graham, not indicted. Not indicted? Hmm. Oh. And these are, and these are people who know yeah. not to mess around yeah. as we were talking about before. You get queen for a day. Yeah. That's it. That's a good one. So I think in the next two weeks, that's who I'm looking for, who's not indicted in Georgia. That's
1: really good. Hagar, what'd you bring?
0: I'm following the Barbie
2: movie and uh, the, the saga it has unleashed with this map of the South China Sea, which sounds so... Niche, but uh, could yeah. be royal things in Hollywood. And so, walk
1: through this. Yeah. This so, let me take,
2: walk it back a little bit. The Barbie movie comes out on the 21st. I will totally watch it, by the way. Um, I'm you know excited to see it. But the Philippines has banned it. And I'm sorry, Vietnam has banned it. And the Philippines is considering banning it. And the reason for that is that there's a cartoonish looking map in the movie that depicts. Asia—there's a whole section of Asia—and shows a maritime border that only the Chinese government uses called the Nine-Dash Line that is a maritime border around all the islands of the South China Sea, and it's their way of staking claim to these waters that— every expert, by the way, every maritime expert has, has refused to even, this is, it's, it's absurd the way they've staked claim to this. And,
1: and the fact that it's even called the Which South China Sea. includes Taiwan is, and. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. And
2: all, and the Spratly Islands, like all these islands that are really a butt, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, I mean, all these countries, Indonesia, <laughs> all these countries that are like, uh, no, this is not your <laughs> land and, or waters. These are not your waters. And so, so the, so there's this maritime border. And so, in the movie this maritime border the nine-dash line appears in this cartoonish uh map and it's it's so random so the, so Vietnam bans it and Warner Brothers comes out and says, listen, we weren't trying to make a political statement. There's no political statement here. And I laughed when I saw that because I was thinking to myself, you know, honey, nobody is thinking that you're debating maritime (laughs) borders over in Hollywood. okay? that that is, you know, let's tone it down a little bit. And but the thing here that Warner Brothers is missing to the story and they know they are, but no one has been pushing back on them is the fact that the Barbie movie is being featured in China in order for any Hollywood movie to be featured in China, it must be approved by Beijing's Ministry of Propaganda. And that is literally the name of the ministry. And what happens is once the movie is finalized, it is sent to this ministry for approval by a group of Chinese bureaucrats to make sure that China's not portrayed in a negative light. There's nothing on China's history or Tibet or whatever um, in order to gain access to China's box office, which is valued at over $7.3 billion, which is the largest box office in the world. And for movies that are very expensive, Expensive to make, it can literally make or break a, a movie's profit. And so, and by the way, for Hollywood uh, Hollywood producers who know in advance that they want to work, to, uh, want a film to release with, to be released in China, they will also often work with this ministry in advance to positively portray China and oh. make sure that they have, so yeah. Marvel movies and yeah. Mission Impossible movies, these kinds, for example. So the question here, because it's weird for a maritime border to be drawn on any map, is um, to Warner Brothers is well your film is being featured in China therefore it was approved by this ministry and since it's kind of weird for maritime borders to be drawn on maps especially ones that aren't regularly used like this nine dash line the question to Warner Brothers is did the Chinese government demand that you include mm-hmm. this line in there and you know Let's you obviously it. agreed um now
1: to get access to 9 point something billion dollars in box office sales yeah
2: exactly and listen i think that my 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 i'm speculating here but this de- something definitely happened for them to get to gain this access, and they're probably making a financial decision that they'd much rather have China's box office than than that of the, the of Vietnam or the Philippines together, or so on. But um, but the thing that it highlights to me is well, a I want to see if more countries ban it, like Philippines and and others in that region. But b. This has really come out to the media more than this issue has in the past. It has been covered in the past how China self-censors Hollywood, but not heavily. And now the Barbie movie really has shined a spotlight on this so I want to see if behavior and changes. And yeah. let's be clear, yeah. it's
0: the Barbie movie. Yeah. 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 It's not like yeah. a story. you know, no. like a big. it's an Oppenheimer. It's not right. like, you know, some big historic film. It's Barbie. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they thought they'd be at the center of a geopolitical fight for no. sure.
1: <laughs> so good. It's I, fascinating. I love that they have now found themselves there. Me I too. hope this gets a lot more. Me too. Scrutiny. <laughs> yeah. All right, gang. Let's flip over to Politology Plus. Uh, before we do, um, oh my God, we're going to talk about Twitter and Elon and cage fighting and all that stuff. Ugh, okay. And threads. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Susan?
0: I'm still on Twitter. Okay. Only
1: on Twitter. So at So Hagar? <laughs>
0: well, I said that, so it's bleeding into the next conversation.
2: <laughs> I am on all social media platforms, wherever you are, Instagram, TikTok. Oh threads, my world! Um, uh, Twitter at, at two locations, Oh My World and Oh My World Show um, on um, on all platforms and on YouTube specifically. Please go and subscribe. And also, personal, my personal pages are at Geek Out with Hagar.
1: Amazing. And I'm still on Twitter, reluctantly at, Ron Stuslo. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at